This is an ABC podcast. And hello. Thanks for your company on this Friday lunchtime. Tara Delangraff bringing you today's WA Country Hour from the studios in Esperance. A little bit of a cooler day than we had yesterday, thankfully. Still good harvest weather though, looking out the window. And shortly on the program, we're going to be taking a look at underwater seismic studies and the impact of events on the lobster population. Turns out it can be pretty damaging and that's calling into question the long-term impact of wind farm and resource seismic testing. So we'll look at that between now and half past 12. We'll also find out why several ag industry groups are calling on the federal government to step away from free trade negotiations with the European Union. And later on the program, we're going to be heading back to school, but we won't be cracking open the books we'll be cracking open the compost tumbler instead. So I do hope you can stay with me for that. First, though, uh, it sounds like a fair few people involved in the cattle industry in the north of Australia might be owed money by the company that owns the Kimberley's Only Meatworks. And the combined total could be more than $5 million. Alice Marshall has been making a lot of phone calls on this investigation. Uh, Alice, what is the story? Afternoon, Tara. The story is that the Yeda Pastoral Company, which controls the pretty iconic Yeda Station and Mount Jaolenga Stations in the West Kimberley, as well as the Kimberley Meat Company, which is, as you mentioned, the only abattoir in northern WA, they're alleged to owe more than $5 million to individuals and businesses across the north of Australia. That's what I've been hearing from people all throughout that supply chain. So who is making these claims? Yeah, so it's not just pastoralists that are making these claims. It really is. If you look at the northern cattle industry, you can pretty much pick pick any profession involved in that supply chain and they will be impacted by this. There are plenty of contractors. And the thing about it, the common denominator here is that, unfortunately, you look at them and they're mostly small family businesses. And it is a a key part, this is a key part of Northern WA's live export, live cattle industry, sorry. It's important to note the significance of it being the only abattoir in Northern WA. This is the only abattoir in Western Australia that's north of Geraldton for a context of scale. Mm. So how much money are some individual businesses owed here, Alice? It's a really tricky question there, Tara, and it's one that I know the answer to, but I unfortunately can't tell you. The reason behind that is because of the arbitration clauses that were written into a lot of the contracts that these people signed before completing the works that they did for Yeda Pastoral Company. And in these arbitration clauses, and I had no idea what arbitration even meant before starting off this story, arbitration means that any dispute over payment that comes after the work's done needs to be resolved out of court. So it means that it's particularly hard to talk about the finances and the money that's owed. The other aspect of that is that within these arbitration agreements that are within the contracts, there are confidentiality agreements. So it begs the question of why were these arbitration agreements put in the contracts in the first place? What I can tell you is we're looking at a combined total of $5 million 
Mm. potentially more. We're looking at figures inside that five million, ranging from the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands and over the million figure. So significant sums of money. Yeah. So have you got any evidence for all of this, Alice? Yes, I do. And I'd love to tell you names and figures and all the rest, again, because of those arbitration clauses, we can't. Otherwise, we're at risk of those people who are wanting their money back, not being able to get it. We're at financial risk. What I can tell you is that I've spoken to dozens of people within the Western Australian cattle industry, within the Northern cattle industry, some of whom have experience inside Yeda's internal operations that have all verified this information. We've had eight of the creditors confirmed and I've seen documents that prove this information. So have you asked the people who who run Yeda Pastoral Company if these claims are are true? I have. So I put to Yeda Pastoral Company a number of questions, both to mobile phone numbers that I had access to and the one email address that I had access to. I put to them that a number of contractors had contacted the ABC to express their concern that they hadn't been paid and asked them how they responded. I also asked them if they're having difficulties paying their contractors and suppliers and if so, why. I asked them how much specifically is owed. I also asked around contractors and suppliers expressing concern that when they had reached out to Yeda Pastoral Company over their payments, the Yeda Pastoral Company hadn't responded to them adequately and in many cases not getting a response at all. I asked them what they thought about this and Yeda Pastoral Company responded with a statement. In that statement, they said that they'd faced tough operating conditions in line with other pastoral and meat processing operations across northern Australia. The statement went on to say these operating conditions were further adversely affected by the significant flood event that occurred in early 2023, while more recently, Yeda has also worked through significant leadership changes. As a result, there have been delays with payments to some creditors, and we apologise for this. The statement reads... Yeda, fully supported by our shareholders, is working with all our creditors to ensure a speedy resolution. So no answers to a lot of those specific questions, but it was a, a very thorough statement from Yeda. Now, Alice, there was recently a change of major shareholders of the company. We had that news on the Country Hour a couple of weeks ago. Is that associated with these reports of unpaid debts? So we know these unpaid debts go back up to 18 months ago. So that change in major shareholders isn't directly associated. I'll talk you through that change because it is significant background to know. It's that Mervyn Keyes, who was one of the co-founders of the Kimberley Meat Company and therefore heavily involved in Yeda Pastoral Company, which owns and runs the Kimberley Meat Company, he sold his 45% share in the in the company to Asia Debt Management. They're a Hong Kong company and they previously owned 40% and now they own over 80% in shares of the Yeda Pastoral Company. Who knows if it has something to do with it? It's a question that I'd like to pose to the managers of Yeda. I bet you would. Uh, How would you describe the mood of those who are owed so much money, Alice? As you mentioned, you've spoken to so many. It's a really down in the mouth, but it's also an extremely frustrated mood. It's something that was summed up incredibly well by someone who who knows the story inside and out, someone who's very involved. 
It's a source that we're unfortunately unable to name, but they said it's even worse this year because everyone is doing it that bit tougher. And it's worth acknowledging here that, of course, cattle prices are extremely far down, much further down than anyone would like to see them. We've also seen all that uncertainty in the live export market. So there's been a period of a couple of months where people were seriously worried about even being able to get their cattle on boats to go live export. And even now that they can get them to go live export, there's serious concern over lumps and bumps and skin lesions and how many of their cattle they will be able to get overseas. So you're looking at Northern WA's only abattoir. It's it's really looking like the only option in this scenario for a lot of people. And that's why that same source also said to me, we all want it to work and we're all there in good faith. We all did this work and supplied these cattle to Yida in good faith because we want this abattoir to work as much as the rest of them. So speaking of that, Alice, I mean, what do you think the future holds for the Only Meat Works in Northern WA and, and for Yida Pastoral Company as a whole? I unfortunately can't say the answer to that. What I can tell you is that those within the industry, as I touched on before, desperately want it to survive. There are plenty of rumours out there that the Yeda Pastoral Company is planning to sell. There is plenty of rumours that those expansion works that we heard of about 12 months ago were all put in place so that they're in a better position to sell. We, I, I can't give you an answer, unfortunately. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. What I do know is I'm just going to give, end on one final quote from that source that I mentioned earlier, and that is to say, quote, Yeda need to change their reputation, and that needs to start with paying people, and it needs to start with open communication. Alice, you've done such a mountain of work on this. Thanks so much for joining us and um, keeping us up to date. No worries at all, Tara. That's Kimberly, rural reporter Alice Marshall. And as that story continues to develop, we will keep you up to date on the country. Uh, I am keen to hear your thoughts on those reports coming in from businesses in the north that they're owed a lot of money by the Yeda Pastoral Company. The text is 0448 922 if you wanted to send something through. We'd love to get your thoughts. It has just gone a quarter past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, several ag industry groups are calling on the federal government to step away from free trade negotiations with the European Union. The trade of, I should say, the federal trade minister, Don Farrell, is set to meet with his EU counterpart over the next couple of days while in Japan for the G7 trade ministers meeting. Chair of Cattle Australia, David Foote, says the beef industry is concerned about what might get signed. We're concerned because the original deal on the table was described as totally unsatisfactory, which is why Minister Farrell walked away. But we haven't heard of any upgrade to that offer or anything since. And then we found out that there's a sideline meeting opportunity as part of the G7 trade ministers in Osaka. So we've gone from a what was described as totally unsatisfactory deal and walk away to now a willingness to want to do a deal. So we just have no idea of what's in between. Have you seen the free trade agreement paperwork for yourself? Have you have you seen what is on the table? No. And as of seven days ago, nobody has seen what's on the table. There's just an expectation, and the minister described to a group of us who got to meet with him and Assistant Minister Tim Ayres and Minister Murray Watt, 
an expectation that they'll improve their offers. So that's we have no transparency of what's on the table. And he's told you that he wants to sign a deal. He he's the minister for all trade in Australia, and whilst agriculture is important, that we and the NFF reminded him is that he wants to do a deal for all of Australia. And and there's a concern that we may not get the chance to negotiate a deal again, given that it's 50 years since the last one. So there's just this there's just this uneasy feeling that whilst he won't do a bad deal, that he wants to do a trade deal. And it's not just about ag. Is there anything in particular you're concerned about? I guess I've, I've seen so many press releases now from various ag industry groups talking about their concern, but I haven't seen too much detail. Well, Matt, that's because there's been no detail put out there. Normally in these processes, industry of all sectors across, you've actually seen the offers on the table and we get to comment whether it's unfair, reasonable, you know, by sector. I mean, historically, not all sectors, there's winners and losers. The irony about this process with the EU, and it's the first time I've seen it, all commodities sitting around the table and we're united in, do not do a bad deal, come home. We'll support you if you don't do it. Now, there are some winners in this deal, but they've even said, nope, we're in ag on this one, we'll support that we don't do a deal if it's not a fair deal. Right. So you feel this is unusual because I was trying to remember that the FTAs with Korea, China and the UK, and I just can't remember this sort of anxiety within the ag sector. I can't remember this sort of public push against it. Yeah, no, and that's and I think it comes down to because we we haven't we haven't seen what the offer on the table is to lock our industries away for the next fifty years. And if and if you if you think about them, the starting point was an unsatisfactory starting point because they just carved off the tonnage to the to the UK out of the EU, which halved effectively our normal our high quality access. Not talking grain fed, just grass fed, halved our access at the tariff rate into the EU. So our, our starting point was we we're, we're, were half as bad at the start. If trade is and, 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 and thinking, Matt, and sorry, and, and thinking, Matt, Canada got sixty thousand ton access. The US has thirty five thousand ton access and doesn't even have an FTA. And New Zealand, I haven't got the exact number, but I know they got an eight hundred percent increase from where they were. And currently, as it stood, the offer on the table was back to where we started from. And as Catalyst J is saying, a fair trade deal before a free trade deal. What does a fair trade deal with the with Europe look like in your books? Oh, somewhere up where our competitors are, I imagine. I'm, you know, I'm sure. Why why can't we have the sixty thousand tonne as the minimum? We're a major export nation, the second largest on, on on the globe. I mean, stretching it to Mercosur might be a bit much, but why? Why not? We're a major exporter of high quality beef. Let, let the commerce make the decision of whether Australian beef is affordable or meets expectations. Don't control it by government quota. Chair of Cattle Australia, David Foote, speaking with Matt Brann. And it's not just the red meat industry getting nervous. In a statement from Cane Growers Chair Owen Menkins, he too is calling on the federal government to step away from free trade negotiations with the European Union, 
rather, he says, than sign a bad deal for Australian farmers. Mr Menken's also said in a statement, we haven't seen a final offer from the Europeans, but if whispers out of Canberra are to be believed, meaningful tariff-free access for agricultural produce is a long way off. Now, earlier in the program, we actually kicked off talking about the Yeda Pastoral Company and potentially $5 million that they owe to businesses in the north of the state. If you're interested in that story about the Yeda Pastoral Company, you can head online, uh, you can head to the ABC Rural website, or you can just search for ABC Rural and you'll find Alice Marshall's story there. And if you do have something that you'd like to uh, text us about that story, our number 0448 922 But we're heading offshore now for a little bit because a study on the impact of underwater seismic surveys has found that in the short term, it can kill about 30% of Western rock lobsters in the survey area. Now, ocean seismic surveying is used to search for substrate things like offshore petroleum or mineral deposits. They're also essential for companies investigating the seafloor when building or planning to build things like wind turbines in the water. An air gun is used to create powerful sound waves and how those sound waves reflect back gives clues about what is beneath the surface. Dr Simon DeLayton is the Principal Research Scientist in Offshore Crustaceans at the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. He says there wasn't much known about the effect of air guns on WA lobsters and so Deeper took a well-timed opportunity to do some research alongside a company conducting a seismic survey south of Dongara. Seismic surveys are hugely expensive. They require specialist vessels and heaps of specialist equipment. They have to be done very professionally so that they get the accurate information. For us to ever set up a, you know, a test seismic survey just to test lobsters is impossible for us. But they were good enough to say, yeah, yeah, totally, come on board. And, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And this is where we could do it. And these companies want to be part of this and, and want to minimise their impacts as well. And it's a question, you know, they've come to you saying, hey, is there going to be an impact? And you probably at that point couldn't answer it because this study hadn't been done. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. You've gone through and and you've taken a look at uh, some of the impacts of seismic testing. What have you found? We got 200 lobsters and we um, put them in little plastic cages. We put half of them 10 kilometres north of the survey location as our control. So we then put the other 100 under the tow lines that the air gun was going to travel along. And then once the survey had been conducted, we pulled all of that, all those lobsters out, took them to another location and let them sort of recover for 24 hours. We then looked at sort of a short-term, a medium-term and a long-term impact on these lobsters. So for the short-term, we grabbed each lobster and we put it upside down in a water tank. And we found that the group of lobsters that experienced the air guns, the seismic survey, took significantly longer to stand up again, as if they were a bit concussed, if you will, or dazed. Another short-term impact, we, we looked at their swimming behaviour. So as we released them, we sort of recorded their behaviour. Most of the seismic lobsters we found more just drifted down, again, a little bit concussed and dazed and sort of slowly floated down to the bottom. So there was a real significant difference in their behaviour when we released them again. Now, this was a day and a half later at this point. So they were still a bit dazed then. And we had also had now 200 lobsters that were released on a coral lump in a certain area that we knew that they were all there. And we could look at the recaptures 
of those lobsters in pots from commercial fishers in the area. So were many caught um, after the month, Simon? Were they still around? Yeah. Well, over the course of the the, the next uh, two years, we, we recaptured 44 of those lobsters. Essentially, we caught 30% less of the um, lobsters if they had experienced the air guns. Does that mean that so, they had died or what did, What do we take out of that? I, I think that's the, the easiest assumption is they didn't, yeah, that they, was, they were compromised somehow from the, experiencing the air guns and whether they, they couldn't avoid predators underwater, like an octopus, for example, or whether they, um, for, for some other reason, yeah, that, that they died. Another possibility, which we, we, we don't think is as likely, is that they just, for some reason, their behaviours change and they don't like going back into the lobster pot anymore. What about exactly. longer term? Well, that was what was really interesting. After sort of one, one and a half, two months, the recapture rate, if you take into account that initial 30% mortality, was actually the same. So long term, it, it seems that if you experienced an air gun and you survived through the first couple of months, you were as likely as any lobster to keep living into the future. When a company is uh, applying to do seismic testing, be it for mineral exploration or be it for wind farms and that sort of thing, and there's a, there's a raft of wind farm applications at the moment for the WA coast, is some of this work that you've done likely to come into that in terms of, well, hang on a minute, if you want to do that testing, you're going to potentially wipe out 30% of the lobster stock. No, you can't do it. I, th- I think so is is the short term. So it's there is a, a proposal to do some some more um, seismic work south of Geraldton. They, they've contacted us and just and found out that we've got this information, this research, and they've they've sort of said, great. Well, can we look at the research once you publish it and release it, and and work with you to try and minimise the impacts and understand them? Like they're being very proactive. I think, and I think that's a great way that. You know, if we all play together nicely, um, we'll get the best outcomes. And it certainly seems that the, the companies in and around Western Australia are doing just that. They're trying, to, they're trying to understand it as much as anyone. Do you think that more work needs to be done now that you've established that there potentially is uh, a mortality associated with seismic testing, that now there needs to be more work done in working out how to minimise the impact of it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the more work initially has to be, okay, exactly what are the impacts and, and how do these relate to water depth and, and you know, the, the diameter of the guns, which, which affects us, affects the, the type of sound. And, and once we can do that, we can then start looking at what we know about the biology of the various animals, the behaviours, and then we can try and piece the two together to minimise the impacts while still allowing this important work of um, seismic surveying. Dr. Simon DeLayton from Deepherd speaking with Joe Prendergast. This week on Landline, the veterans finding a new mission through farming. You don't have to put the uniform on to still display the values. You know, mateship, camaraderie, teamwork, all these types of things is something that, that can still be a part of what you do every day. And searching for the best high school agricultural programs. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And shortly you will hear a proper preview of that story involving the ex-army guys now farming avocados and ginger.
And I'm not sure if uh, Pinjarra's high school agricultural project will feature on this Sunday's Landline program, but shortly we will hear from a long-serving teacher from Pinjarra and one of his students who he helped find a job at a nearby composting facility called Seawise. Then you'll find out what that composting company plans to do with a grant from the state government worth almost $6 million. So I do hope you can stay with me for that. Uh, earlier in the program, though, we did head to the Kimberley and we heard from uh, our reporter, Alice Marshall. She's been doing a lot of phone calls on an investigation looking uh, into Yeda Pastoral and the company that owns the Kimberley's Only Meatworks. And it looks like they could owe a combined total of more than $5 million to businesses in that part of the state. Bruce has texted in to say on a positive note, it looks like the old GME abattoir in Geraldton is going to start operating in around six months' time. Uh, they have an ad up seeking workers. So thanks so much for sending us a text. Bruce, if you've got something to say, send us one as well, 0448 922 Right now, though, it is almost half past 12, so let's head to the newsroom where Ali Colvin has the headlines for us. Thanks, Tara. The US military says it's launched airstrikes on a weapons storage facility and an ammunition storage facility used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard in eastern Syria. The Pentagon says fighter jets targeted the facilities near Abu Kamal, a Syrian town on the border with Iraq. The Pentagon says the strikes come in retaliation for a series of drone and missile attacks on US bases and personnel in the region that began earlier last week. European leaders have sought to use their combined leverage to ensure more aid reaches Palestinians in need. They've also sought to help EU citizens in Gaza escape danger, including some who are being held hostage by Hamas militants. A body's been recovered from the base of cliffs in Sydney's east. Police had been searching for a man over the death of a young water polo coach. The body of Lily James, who was a teacher at St Andrew's Cathedral School in Sydney's CBD, was found at the school on Wednesday night. 24-year-old Paul Tayson, who also worked there, has been wanted for questioning over her murder. There'll be more news at one o'clock. Thanks so much, Ali. Ali, as uh, woo, she'll be back in about 29 minutes' time. Uh, between then and now, though, we've got a little bit to get through, uh, including taking you to Pinjara High School, where uh, I mentioned we're going to hear from a former student and also a teacher who's about to uh, hang up his hat and a really exciting project that they've got there that involves compost. So look forward to uh, taking you there very shortly. Before we do, though, let's head to the Weather Bureau, Catherine Shelfout is the duty forecaster for us today. Uh, Catherine, good afternoon. Let's start in the Southwest Land Division. What are we in for in the next couple of days, please? Hi, Tara. I believe you're in cold, cloudy Esperance. We had 30, <laughs> yeah. nearly 33 yesterday and only 19 today. Yes, big difference. <laughs> it's, um, well, what's happening at the moment, it's fairly cloudy along the south coast. So that's a remnant of the uh, cold front that moved through yesterday and brought a little bit of a change. And we do have a fair bit of cloud um streaming across from the West Gascoigne through the northern goldfields and down through the Eucla and a few lightning strikes uh, through the Gascoigne at the moment, which uh, we expect to continue and maybe uh, extend into the northern goldfields there. So they're very high-based thunderstorms which are not likely to bring any rain, uh, maybe a few spits of rain um, through the southeastern part of that, but um, they'll probably just be dry and gusty and not bring rain with them. Uh, and, yeah, expecting a good south uh, southerly wind surge through 
southeastern parts of the state as that trough moves east and uh, the ridge moves in. So um, from tomorrow, we'll see uh, the ridge really settling in along the south coast and a weak trough uh, near the west coast will move inland. So we'll have a mostly sunny day through the southwest land division, uh, cloudy just along the south coast. Expecting a fairly uh, cold morning through uh, southern parts, mainly through the um, southern great southern temperatures there will be down to sort of around 2 to 4 degrees overnight. Um, but uh, clearing up to a, a mild day, temperatures generally in the low to mid 20s, um, a little bit higher um, up into the low 30s once you get uh, into the Midwest there. And we'll have some fairly fresh easterly winds in far northern parts of the Southwest Land Division, um, but elsewhere fairly light during the morning. And then a really um, fresh and gusty um, south southwesterly sea breeze will push through uh, pretty much the extent of the west coast uh, during the afternoon. On Sunday, we'll see a weak cold front uh, move along the south coast. So we're really only expecting to see showers south of a line around uh, about Mandurah to Nwanga up to Hopetown, um, probably two to five millimetres if you're close to the south coast and uh, not too much more extending inland. And once that front uh, moves across to the east, we'll get a, another good southwesterly surge um, pushing in through the southwest land division as um, the ridge really moves in. So uh, it will be cooler again, temperatures around 18 to 20 degrees uh, near the south and sitting in the high 20s uh, through northern parts of the southwest land division. And for what? Monday and Tuesday, back to a more familiar sort of spring pattern with the ridge uh, pushing in and a trough forming near the west coast. So on Monday, we'll have some gusty southeasterlies through northern parts of the southwest land division. And on Tuesday, we'll see that stronger east-southeast uh, wind uh, mainly through the morning and again overnight uh, through the northern parts and also along the south coast and also along the Darling Scarp near the west coast. So we'll see temperatures just increasing then from Monday right through to the end of the week. So hottest days likely to be uh, Thursday and Friday getting back into the mid to high 30s and also a couple of our models suggesting we might see some thunderstorm activity on Tuesday or maybe Wednesday um, possibly in the Perth metro area possibly in the wheat belt watch this space because uh, a little bit uncertain with these mid-level systems. Mm, I was going to ask when we were uh, when we were expecting some of that warmer weather, Catherine. We seem to get a warm day, a little bit of a tease, and then it goes back uh, cold again here in the southwest land division. So interesting, as you say, to see what happens mid next week. If we head north and east, uh, those forecast districts, what are we expecting, please? Yes, so in the north, um, a lot of fires around the place at the moment, as people up in the Kimberley would know, and the Pilbara, um, so a bit of smoke around as well. So it's been really hot, and it um, just looks like that will continue. Uh, one thing that's easing is the easterly winds. So we've had uh, pretty fresh and gusty easterlies um, during the mor morning periods up in the Kimberley. Um, that will ease tomorrow. They'll still be a little bit gusty through the eastern Kimberley um, and through the Gascoyne um, but generally um, as the high through central Australia um, moves off um, we see an easing of those winds. Um, yesterday we had a few decent storms. Theta which is in the northern Kimberley had 27 millimetres um, but today because it's so dry we're only expecting to see storms um, near the far west Kimberley up there on the Dampier Peninsula really. So we'll have a couple of um, 
drier days up there, no storms forecast for the Kimberley for the next few days until about Tuesday. But we do have some thunderstorm activity possible through central parts of the state. So similar to what we're seeing today through the Gascoigne um, and southeast, uh, that's what we're expecting again tomorrow. And again, they will probably be high-based and not with much rain. And um, that area of storms will just sort of gradually push north into the Pilbara and into the interior over uh, Sunday and Monday as the trough moves north as well. Uh, not much else to mention other than it's continuing very hot in the Kimberley and Pilbara. <laughs> does sound to be the case. Uh, any warnings at all, Catherine, that we need to know about? We do just have a strong wind warning uh, extending down the west coast all the way from the Ningaloo coast to the Perth coast and also uh, for the Eucla coast. And that's it for now. Alrighty, righty Catherine Shelfout, duty forecaster at the Bureau. Thank you very much for joining us this lunchtime. And we did hear Catherine mention a little bit of rain at theatre there. Richard Hudson, anything else we need to be aware of that happened overnight? Yeah, thanks very much, Catherine. Stolen my thunder, <laughs> literally. <laughs> There's only, there's only two rainfall figures I was going to read out. Theta was the big one with 27. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, the other one's Yampi Sound with five, so they're both obviously in the Kimberley. For the entire rest of the state, the highest rainfall figure was two mils at Beetle Up, and that's in the southwest. But uh, a lot of places could actually do with some rain, mainly because there are a lot of fires still burning throughout WA today. Many are at an advice level. One of them is still at a watch and act level. That's in place in the Shire of Broome. So that's for people travelling along the Great Northern Highway from Frazier Downs Road to 70 kilometres north of Sandfire Roadhouse in parts of Lagrange and 80 Mile Beach. So the Great Northern Highway between Sandfire Roadhouse and Roebuck Roadhouse will remain closed today. So if you were intending to travel north or south on the Great Northern Highway between Broome and Port Hedland, Maybe just reconsider those travel plans. And if you need any updates on any of those fires, the ones that are at an emergency or watch an act or advice or whatever, throughout summer, just do a search for emergency WA and you'll find all the information that you need. Natara, you were you keep mentioning about the Pinjara High School, and that's because <laughs> we've managed to track down a former student called Liam Gordon because he's now working at a state-of-the-art composting facility near Mandurah that recycles organic carbon. So we'll find out a bit, a bit about that shortly. But I'm told part of the reason Liam got the job was thanks to an agricultural program run by a teacher called Daryl Spargo. In year 11, I, did, I do remember saying to him, once I finish high school, I'll come here and want to work for a bit. And ever since I've left school, did another job. I've just been waiting for an opening here, and then I applied, and then I got the job. What's he like to work with? Really good, good teacher, good understanding. As a, you know, obviously he teaches you these yeah. skills, right? But as a person, what do you think you've learned from him? I learned a lot of things, like, like how to be independent, how to drive the machinery, like a tractor, which is transferred to one of the machinery that I'm currently learning here. Learning independence, hard working, and motivation. Getting a job done and then seeing that job needs to get done. You finished school now? Yeah. Um, but did you have many teachers like Daryl? No, Joe, Mrs. Spargo was one of the best. 
So that's Liam Gordon, who's 19 now. And from all reports, the composting company, which is called Seawise, is very happy to have Liam as one of their employees. You'll hear from the CEO shortly, but Liam mentioned his teacher and mentor, Daryl Spargo, and it sounds like he was a bit of a legend at Pinjarra High. The students actually just called him Spargo. <laughs> um, and he's tried to retire a few times, but he's been unsuccessful. And that's <laughs> partly because he loves his job. But at the end of this year, I think he might actually be retiring for good. That'll make it 47 years helping students achieve their dreams. I just enjoy what I do. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. And I'm passionate about the agricultural side, so that was a gift when I decided to take it up in 1996. Uh, I discovered something that was really good for students. Enjoy working with the kids. They all deserve a chance. And uh, they can all be successful, at any, starting at any level. But I always believe that any kid can go and do whatever he wants. We've just got to get them on track and give them some help. I guess briefly, could you sort of describe the program? Um, who are you bringing here and, and what are you doing? So we roughly do 16 students a year because that's all we can handle in the bus. And we bring them out here to do a cert two in rural operations. And they do animal husbandry, plant husbandry, farm maintenance, driving machines, ox health and safety, and they learn to work in the industry, so they're actually, you know, it's a real life job. What we do out here counts and works, and uh, I think that's pretty important for kids to learn. And um, yeah, I love doing the physical side, and I love being out in the open environment and, and making a difference to the environment where we're working and, and to the students. And we all get together as a group and work as a team, and they work out that teamwork does work. For example, shearing or, or the other job, fencing. We can get a lot done with 15 students in, in an hour's time. We can do 15 hours work. So. You said you, you know, you'd, you'd like to think you make a difference for the kids, for the I students. Do you, do you think you've done that and what kind of difference? Well, a lot of my students still stay in contact with me. He's one, Liam's one. He comes and sees us regularly and there's quite a few of them do that. And um, I've probably taught, because I've been at the one school for 47 years... I'm into third generation from some families. So I've either taught mum or dad or, you know, in some exceptional circumstance. My son-in-law, he's only, he's 60 and I'm 68 and I taught him at school. So, yeah, you do make a difference, I think, to those people. Yeah. It sort of ran me through, like, when you started, the local water system has been a bit of trouble with the piggery and, you know... Yeah. Over the years, you've done a lot to reverse that. Yeah. How do you reflect on just, you know, the natural changes or the changes to the natural environment that you've had, you know, you're responsible for over a number of years? I've been out here now for uh, 22 years and all the trees that you can see from here, I've basically planted with the kids. So 40,000 trees and right now there's some of them are 15 metres tall and and you know, using up nutrients and doing whatever we planted them for, environment for animals and so on. So yeah, it is, it's, it gives me a great kick to come out here. Same with the students, they'll plant trees or put up fences or whatever and some of the staff out here run them over with the big loaders and the students don't like it. You know, they, we built that fence or we planted those trees, how come they're getting damaged, you know? You tried to retire five years ago, is this one the real deal? 
definitely. I've already given my notice to the school. December 14th, I'm out. What's next? What's next? Bowling, fishing and family. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? It's a quarter to one. You are listening to The Country Hour and you were just hearing from Pinjarra High School teacher Daryl Spargo speaking with Tom Robinson about his retirement. It's happening for real this time after a very long career helping students. And it really sounds like Daryl was an inspiring teacher. I wonder if you've had a teacher that inspired you. Uh, it is actually World Teacher Day today. I popped out to an assembly uh, for my little kindy fellas school today. Uh, we gave the teachers a big round of applause for all the work they do. But if you had somebody who especially inspired you, let me know. Our text number zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. I had a couple of wonderful teachers myself. Uh, Mrs. Bradstreet, she was lovely, and Mr. Nutchie, both wonderful teachers at high school. Um, Richard, uh, can you remember back that far? Did you have some some high school teachers who inspired you? Uh, oh, thank you very much. I d- I would do a shout out to some of my favourite teachers, but unfortunately, I don't think they're still with us. So. Mm. <laughs> Maybe. It's just, uh, I don't know, Mr. Kelly, my geography teacher, was pretty good. And uh, Mr. Cornish, I'm not sure if he's still with us, but uh, I liked him because he used to allow us to take off our tie in summer. He was about Ah, the only one. (laughs) Great idea. Hey, that uh, composting facility where Liam Gordon, the 19-year-old former student at Pinjarra High School, where he works now, that uh, facility is located just near Mandurah. It's called Seawise, and the C, it's the letter C, stands for carbon, and it turns all sorts of waste into organic carbon that gets used on farms. Greg Watts is the CEO. Yeah, young Liam's come on board, and Liam's, Liam's my success story. So I, well, not mine, but he's his own success story. But I love, I love opportunities where kids can learn through experience. And Liam came, first got introduced to Seawise through our fleece program with Pinjarra High School. Um, he completed his year 11 and 12 around agricultural operations and then applied for one of our groundspeople, traineeships in in our groundspeople. So Liam's fantastic. Real growth from being, you know, a a shy young student, learning how to drive a tractor, coming out to working at the compost facility, which is a great pathway for young people. Now, it sounds like Seawise is going to want to employ some more people soon. That's because Mm -hmm. last year the company was given a $5.75 million grant from the state government to expand and establish a new composting facility. Greg Watts says that'll allow them to turn even more food and garden waste into compost that can be used on farms. So what you'll see at our new facility will be uh, a refresh of how Seawise creates compost. So it'll be state-of-the-art um, enclosure at the front end for the protestable stage and then stepping out into more traditional open air composting but uh, under a roof so that we can control mother nature and the moisture a little bit better. We're at your existing facility here, we're under those elements right now. How would you describe this facility as it is? It's a really good facility, I mean it's lots of large open areas where we can compost where we need to but you know as it, as it rains the moisture gets a bit high in some of our compost, higher than we like it to be. So we prefer to be able to control the moisture. I like to control the process and with Mother Nature deciding when and where she'll chuck the water down and it gets a bit hard. Over summer, of course, it's belting down with the, uh, with the, the hot West Australian sun so it gets a bit challenging to keep the moisture at optimal levels through summer as well. In my compost at home, all sorts of waste goes in there. Is that the same here? 
every waste that comes in here provides a benefit to the finished product. So I want to look at what a farmer needs for perhaps to grow canola, and I want to make sure that some of the byproducts, we prefer to call them byproducts, that come into this facility are going to align with what we need at the other end for the product. So what sort of things are, well, let's take a look at this truck. What's coming in here, do you reckon? Um, <laughs> Just about to be dumped here. Yeah, so probably looking at, uh, at some uh, grain waste or some eco-shelter from Piggery next door. Um, we take some uh, Jarrah sawdust waste from Simcoa or byproducts from Simcoa as well that come off the forest floor after they've done what they need to do with it. And we process about 160 to 170,000 tonnes of incoming byproduct, be that shire green waste, Jarrah sawdust, cereal waste, or some, some more localised waste like brewery sludge and stuff like that. Some of your animal waste is obviously what they're processing through their body, but you're, you're also dealing with dead animals as well. Is that a, a big part of it? Yeah, we deal with mortalities. I think the, the fossil fuel and the dinosaurs prove that if it was once living, it can be composted. And we see, we see animal mortalities um, and animal processing waste, like uh, wash waters from chicken processing factories and things like that. They contain protein, which has a, a certain amount of nitrogen and then predominantly carbon, which we can all use in the composting process. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 11 minutes to one and we're uh, at Seawise at the moment, which is where young Liam, uh, we heard from earlier today from Pinjarra High School, is working at the moment. He's been inspired to head there by his teacher, Mr Spargo. Spargo, apparently, is what the kids have called him after 47 years working at that school. And we've been asking uh, if you've had some inspiring teachers in your time. Dave from Busso sent us a text on 04489. And says, uh, Bob Higgins, science, teach, science teacher rather from Bunbury Senior High School in the early 80s, was a wonderful man, remembers everything he taught me. So thank you, Dave, from, uh, for sending us a text there. Uh, but Hutto, uh, look, we are talking compost. We used to have a compost uh, pile at home, had to constantly turn it with a shovel. I was absolutely rubbish at it. Needless to say, we don't have it anymore. Um, I'm thinking about what we had to do to get the air in to break everything down. How big are the shovels at Seawise? They do have some big ones, but they're known as front-end loaders. You could probably hear one in the background just there. (laughs) That explains things. But that's not the main tool they use to get air into their compost. They actually have a system called MAF. So a MAF is an air, mobile aerating floor. It's uh, it's a Technology that Seawise found after an exhaustive worldwide search as being the most energy efficient and space efficient composting technology developed by Martin Hauck from Germany. We've had it on our facility for about 15 years now. And what that effectively does is it enables us to turn that compost pile every eight to 10 minutes, which significantly reduces the amount of time taken to compost. Yeah, right. As opposed to you, who's using the, the sweat and the muscle to flip it. <laughs> My compost pile is a bit smaller than yours as well. (laughs) Big question for farmers though, where does this end up? Because it looks pretty dark and it looks pretty darn good, especially if if you're making sure that the ingredients going in are exactly what you need. I'd imagine you're not travelling too far from here. Are most of your customers within a small space? Yeah, so because it's fairly loose and fairly light, we think our golden circle of transport is probably about 200 kilometres. So out towards you know, Williams, Highbury, Narragin, that sort of distance. 
um, is ideal for us. As far as what's in it for farmers, we, we like to match the NP, you know, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the potassium, the sulphur, everything that their crop will need for nutrition, we feel confident that we can utilise one of our composts to achieve those levels. How does it stack up? Have you ever done trials where you put your compost onto some land and you've compared it to the so-called conventional fertilisers where you're putting the synthetic fertilisers on? How does it stack up firstly productivity-wise? Yes, that, that's a really good question and, and one thing we're, we're doing is I guess we're, we're going against the norm. This is an accepted practice in, in, in Australia or Western Australia typically. So we've, we've done two years now of, of replicated trials on properties from New Norcia, Dan Darrigan, down to down to Highbury, looking at matching nutrient application with standard grower practice. So using, in one trial, using fertilizers stacked up against, for instance, two tonnes per hectare of compost. Really exciting results. Um, in our first year, we managed to match yield against standard grower practice. And that's grown to more trials where we're now looking at doing replicated trials which is the more scientific version of what we sort of were playing with uh, which we hope to have the results after this after this year's harvest and I guess the proof in the pudding for me is is farmer uptake so if we looked at 2021 we had about a thousand ton go out to Broadacre 2022 we had about 6,000 ton and then I think for the 2024 seeding season will probably be at around the 20,000 tonne mark which is fairly significant uptake for us. So with your new facility are you hoping to expand where you can actually generate more compost for more farmers? Yeah we think uh, we think we'll see a well we'll hope for a, a, a slight license increase over there we're currently licensed to produce 90,000 tonnes of compost we'd expect that to go somewhere to 150,000 tonne at our new facility um, and then look at other, other people we can partner with to keep providing the quality compost to customers that need that, that maybe can't source it from our Nambilup or East Carolup operations. CY's CEO Greg Watts chatting to Richard from their existing facility, which is on the outskirts of Mandra. And Greg hopes their new CY's composting facility will be completed in the middle of 2025. It'll be located about 25 kilometres east of Mandra. They currently employ about 40 people, and once that new facility is up and running, they hope to have about 50 to 60 people on the books. And someone at CYS must be pretty good at uh, writing grant proposals because, as you heard, last year they were given a $5.75 million grant from the state government, and that was for the Food Waste to Healthy Soils program. Then this morning it was announced that they've received another $100,000 from the state government. So CYS is one of five West Australian operators uh, of organic recycling facilities that have been given funding under the Waste Sorted Grants, which is an organics infrastructure uh, program. The other successful applicants were the City of Albany. Uh, also a successful applicant was the Eastern Metropolitan Regional Council and the Resource, Resource Recovery Group and Pure Earth. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today, Hostage Negotiations. What role is the Gulf state of Qatar playing in talks to secure the release of captives in Gaza? Dozens of homes destroyed as bushfires continue to burn in regional Queensland and the unstoppable rise of artificial intelligence. 
UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announces the world's first AI safety institute. Is Australia doing enough? Those stories coming up on The World Today. Well, today coming to you uh, very soon. Uh, between then and now, of course, we will have the news at one o'clock. And of course, being a Friday, it is time to talk wool. Uh, we've got Danny Burkett for us. Danny, um, I understand the market was relatively stable this week, pretty much unchanged. Uh, I think around 39,000 bales are on offer nationally, if, uh, if I'm correct in what I've been reading. And the finer end uh, did pretty well. So tell us overall, how did things fare? Yeah, mate, you're spot on the money there. The Eastern Market indicator was at 11.39. That was exactly the same as last week. The West ended up at 12.66. That was off 10. Interestingly, if you look at the Eastern Market indicator in the US currency, that was plus one. So a very even market across the board. If we look at the market here in Fremantle over Tuesday and Wednesday, 18 microns were quoted plus 15 to close at 15.10. 19s were off 10 to close at $14 flat. 20 micron was up, no, sorry, off 15 to close at 13.20. Just an interesting point on 20 micron. If we look at the indicators across the three centres, I've never seen this before in my time. Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle all ended up on the exact same price for that micron. Very unusual. Wow. 21 microns off 10 at 12.95 on the close. 22s also off 10 to close at 12.60. Pieces and bellies, very volatile in the eastern states over the two days, but in Fremantle, only fell five cents on the fine end and five cents on the medium and broads, and that was regardless of the VM that they were carrying. So a very firm market. And again, if we look at the price differentials between fleece and pieces, they are sitting pretty much historically where they sit on the averages. So the market very well balanced in relation to its combing wool. Oddments, locks off 20 cents for the week. Crutchings and stains, fully firm. Lambs wool, fully firm over the two days. So overall, if we look at the market, a very firm market. Another interesting point is VM is falling away very quickly. So if we go back five weeks ago, 60% of merino combing on the market had VM over 1%. If we're looking at that figure today, 60% of the combing wool merino has under 1% VM. So what that does in the marketplace is the discounts for VM has started to fall away dramatically, in particular around that 2% mark, whereas five, six weeks ago, we might have seen discounts at 40 to 50 cents, they're now at 20 cents. So market remains fully flat and you're holding wools at 2% VM, you've certainly picked up on discount alone. Mm, well, that's certainly remarkable after the big rise we had last week, Danny. We did see some of those mid-tier buyers uh, back in the market. Who was buying this week? Well, uh, no surprises. We look at Merino fleece wool. Tech wool trading took 19% Merino fleece wool. Uh, just moved to the crossbred market. Um, tech wool trading took 26%. We moved to the skirtings, Merino skirtings. Tech wool trading took 23%. We look at the oddments. Tech wool trading took 13% of those across the country. Back to the fleece wool, second largest buyer, PJ Morris, West Australian-based business. Endeavour will export 12.5% and TNU 11%. So no surprises um, in those top buys. They're just swapping places each week in that top four. But tech will trading very aggressive with their purchases this week. Um, Bull of the gate um, buying across all those four types on, in the marketplace. All right. And just before we let you go, Danny, next week, what are we in for? Next week, the volumes have started. Um, as they do every time this year, we'll be offering 47,000 or just above 47,000 between Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, Tuesday, Wednesday, sales across those three centres. 
So as I said a couple of weeks ago, volume is starting um, to increase and I think that will be the tail as we move into the next two or three months. Thanks, Danny. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.